Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, Moxie. Hi, Mom. Do you know what the term PWI means? I do not. It's a, um, it means, it's like stands for predominantly white institutions. Hmm. So like everywhere. Hi, I'm Nolika Radway, and this is Raising Rebels, a podcast about oppressed parents raising free children. Today, I am joined by my woe, Shalewa. Um, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, anyway, we're going to get into all of it, even why you are my woe. But Shalewa, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Shalewa McCall. I am a 51-year-old mother of one now 29-year-old son who I raised primarily as a single parent with a really deep and wide net of family and community support, but I was a single parent. I am a lifelong educator, I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. I currently teach at an independent school in New York City. I teach interdisciplinary Black studies at the high school level and dance, primarily rooted in the traditions and techniques of the African diaspora, grades 4 to 12. I've been in relationship to that school for 18 or 19 years, and I've been teaching dance for 34-ish years, and other things before and since and in between. And that's not even all of it. That's not, that's not even, literally, that's not even the half, but yes, all those things are true. Um, Tell us about your son. My son is a really powerful and beautiful young man. He is passionate and original and a really deep thinker. He's one of my favorite people to talk to about anything. Uh, Particularly, we get into deep conversations around culture and gender and politics. Uh, He's really funny and as I grow beyond being worried about what happens when your children grow up to be um, funny people in public and the things that we imagine to be true and maybe are even true about those kinds of folks, I sometimes encourage him in that direction. He was a really excellent performer and still sometimes performs as uh, a hip hop artist, as a rapper. And maybe his true calling would be being funny in public. (laughs) How are you and your son most alike? We have very uh, similar smiles and faces. Mm -hmm. Um, We think really deeply about things that other people don't take seriously. I think that is a way in which we are are really similar. We appreciate the social and political and interpersonal dimensions of popular culture, of the music we listen to, the things that we read. We are both readers and writers. Those are, are, I think, our key similarities. (sighs) I can hear you. I can just listen to you talk forever. I really really can. I just like, I feel like I... I feel like I know your son a little bit and I've never met him, but I feel, and I mean, we've talked about him before, but I feel like I just learned something new about him, which is really special and feel special to be able to bring him into the space with us. Um, so today we're going to be talking about being educators and what it is to be educators and to be with children and to be children in predominantly white spaces and schools and what that experience has been like for us, but also 
how we guide our children. Like, how do we support young people in being in those spaces? And so when I was thinking about the recollection today and like what to think about, I thought about being a guide. And I asked you to push back as far as you can, doing recollections as a way to get in touch with who we were as children and to bring children into the space um, and think about a memory from a time that you were a guide. Can you tell us your story, please? Hmm. The story that came immediately to me was um, I am the alumna of an independent school, uh, an all-girls school in Boston, and I was a guide at that school. Um, And as a guide, I gave tours to prospective students and parents, both as a middle school and high school student, Mm. and... I've been thinking about that experience a lot recently, but taking it right back into a very specific moment. Um, I was good at giving tours. I am a nerd, proudly. And so knowing information, significant information and trivial information about the school and the grounds were things that I was into just because I was into stuff like that. And I come from a family of educators, and we joke that teaching is the family business. So sharing information with people is something that is part of me Mm -hmm. from my earliest, earliest memories. But at the school, I was specifically an excited and brilliant, articulate little Black girl with a big smile, mm-hmm. who was really happy to meet people and tell them how great it was at my school. And I didn't complicate it with, I didn't complicate my telling with any of the complications that I met there. Mm. And I didn't know this at the time, but at various points in my um my matriculation through that school, and I attended from sixth grade through 12th grade. I was the only Black child, Black girl at the school who was not um, there through a community engagement program. So in that capacity, the director of admissions asked me at some point, um, If I could, quote, tell her where to find more like me. Mm. And she called me dear because we just can't find any. And she was serious or I took her seriously. I am a Virgo. And as a kid, (laughs) I was super hyper literal. Mm -hmm. And I really thought hard about that because I kind of instantly knew she meant like me who lived in the suburbs and There were other black girls. My best friend was a black girl at my school who lived in the same suburb that I lived in. Um, But my best friend was not a smiley, smiley person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting. I think how I'm still really smiley, but I'm way more political now. Mm -hmm. And she didn't give as much energy and attention to taking the little white ladies questions and like internalizing them and carrying them around for 40 years. And here I am very literally 40 years later, still thinking about that question and still wondering why she ever thought it was an appropriate thing to ask a child. Mm-hmm. I, You know, Shalewa, I already knew, I already knew, I already knew um, having you on with me was going to open me up because you're my woe. Um, My story was like, I don't like the thing that came to mind for me and being a guide, which often comes to mind when I think about myself as a young person is being the older to my my younger sister. And one memory in particular I have um, 
you know, I used to go to Florida um, in the summers to stay with my grandma. Well, like twice it happened. And I remember the first year I did it. I must have, we did it. I must have been maybe 12 or 11. And my sister and my younger cousin, they mu- they were like, you know, they were younger than me, eight, seven, maybe eight, nine, something like that. And I remember one day we were sitting, there was um, a family secret like a a known family secret. And I don't know how I knew this secret, but I knew it. And they did not. Or they had questions about it. Maybe they had murmurs of it and heard parts of the secret and like knew something and they were asking questions. And something didn't smell right to them. You know, like, you know, like they don't know the details, but they're like, what's going on? They're talking about it back and forth and confused. And um, I guess the way I remember it is like, I just told them the secret. I was like, this is what it is. I don't even remember how old they are, to be honest with you. But I remember, I like, I just like, I just told them what it is. And I remember in telling them what it is, it was a lot about me wishing, thinking like if I was them, I would have wanted to know. Or like giving them some level of like respect or like, yeah, you don't have, it doesn't have to be a secret for you. If I know it, you can know it. Like here it is. Um, And now am I like, my adults, like my adult self now, even when I say their ages, I'm like, they must have been older, but they probably weren't. They probably were that young, right? Like, because we felt we felt close in age. I definitely felt older, but not like far removed. Um, I wonder about like, was that about them? Was that about me? I mean, obviously it was a, like, it was about me. And what was that about for me? Like what was being their guide, being like having power, in the space, like having information, right? Having power and how I chose to use that um, and why giving the information, all the information was the way I chose to use that power, Um, which (sighs) brings up a lot of feelings about a lot of things, but definitely helps me think more about the role I've played as an educator, a black woman in predominantly white school spaces. And I've always wanted to tell all of the black people, all the black children, all the black about like, don't you see the writing on this wall? Here we are. I'm in here with you, but don't you see all of it? And now in retrospect, because I'm like, I don't work in those spaces anymore, thinking about, is that enough? Like, you know, like, is it enough to just share the information? Is it enough? Like, what am I, why am I there? Like, what is happening? How do I help it? And I kind of want to get into it with you around what is our role? What do we do as educators? And what is it about for us? And so I guess my first, my first question to you is, did you, are you surprised that you, work in a school setting that is similar to the school setting that you went to when you were a young person? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, punto. I am surprised. Um, I did a few different things um, on my way to being a teacher and I came back to teaching as my steady day job. Um, I am uh, as you might guess, because I teach dance, mm-hmm. a performer, a choreographer, um, and a poet, and I needed a regular income. And there was a period, uh, frankly, the period before No Child Left Behind, when there was a lot of money available for teaching artists. Mm-hmm. There were lots of arts and ed programs around, and I was able to you know, have a uh, a modest but sustainable living coming in by being a teaching artist in a pretty freelance way, working independently and with a few different um, cultural nonprofits in the city. And a friend of mine was teaching African dance at this prep school. And I was like, they got what, where? Okay, that's interesting. Because the only African dance that I knew to have ever been taught, maybe to this day at the school that I graduated, was taught by me Mm. as a student. Mm -hmm. And she needed a sub, and it was easy to slip into my rotation of things. And lots of things happened, and I wound up 
being there, frankly, because a lot of the outside work dried up and because I really love teaching and the ease of teaching at that institution included things that I didn't have as an itinerant teaching artist, even when it was a relatively well-paying job, Mm -hmm. which was live accompaniment for my classes, a clean, dedicated dance teaching space. Um, Students who genuinely and generally wanted to be in the room with me and for whom being in the classroom reflected an affirmative choice and not a compelled action. All of those things are really wonderful gifts to a teacher, an arts teacher, a person who is invested in representing, reflecting, and um, passing on a legacy in African diaspora art. And they were paying me uh, consistently and over time, and it wasn't true actually when I started as a substitute, but over time it became true that they were paying me much better than the outside world was paying for that work. But I was still not sold. And the thing that changed my mind um, was talking to Black students and specifically Black girls and young women who were students in that school And they would come to me with things that had nothing to do with dance class. (laughs) Listen, yes. And I would recognize that for the first time, I had this really specific skill set, hard earned by lived experience Mm -hmm. as a black girl at an independent school Mm -hmm. that somebody needed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's why I actually wound up staying Mm -hmm. was, oh, I never had a single black teacher in independent school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't have a teacher of color directly. Um, Yeah. But I was like, oh, I could do that. I could be that. I know something about this. I want to back up a little bit because you said something that really resonated with me. And it was the ease on which you were able to secure work in that space. And I've worked in like several independent schools and it is really, you know, like at the time when you're getting those positions or those opportunities are presenting themselves to you, it doesn't feel easy. It just feels like I'm following this path. Like someone asks you, do you want to apply for this? Someone asks you, are you available to do this? And you're just like, yeah, sure, I can do this. Yeah, I'll co- like, I'll go, yeah. And there isn't, it wasn't until, I don't know when it hit me, but when it hit me, like that kind of thing you spoke about when you're talking in your recollection around whatever the white people saw, the white liberal, the white progressive, the white private, whatever they saw in me um, that said, you're the kind of black person that I'm going to be comfortable with being in this space. And how that was part of why it was so easy for me to be in those spaces and get those opportunities and how messy that is for me, you know, like how messy that is for me as the person who really needed it, (laughs) you know, like really needed it, pretty much really deserved it. I'm good at what I do, you know, like I'm good at what I do, but also completely recognizing that the reason why... I am getting these opportunities is because of how I have learned how to navigate white supremacy in ways that are comfortable for white people. And why? You know, like, you know, you talk about your friend who, because I, you know, who other people that you know that you're, that for whatever reason do not, does not give white people that same feeling. And what do you think that is in us? Oh, this is funny. So my childhood best friend, too, um, is extremely objectively successful. She went from our fancy day school to a fancy boarding school to Stanford and Harvard and Oxford. And she's really successful and she's a banker. Mm-hmm. So she, she's okay with white folks and white folks are okay with her. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to misrepresent that. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I struggle uh, right now. I am struggling with 
what it means to be middle-aged, dark-skinned, round, naturally maternal, and ridiculously beloved by white people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some who don't even know me, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and how that grafts onto tropes that people jokingly referenced in regard to me when I was even a kid. Mm. I got called Aunt Jemima as a kid. And that was weird to me because I was a child and I wasn't, you know, a lot of things. And and adding on to that, um, there is something about language in it. I was a very early reader. I do not have a memory of learning how to read. I have a memory of other people knowing I could read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I like words. Mm -hmm. I come from a family full of people who are multilingual, super verbal, and I talk the way I talk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I speak the way I speak. I sound the way I sound. And um, my person... Uh, tells me when I asked him why do white people love me so much because mm -hmm. it was uh, frustrating me one day recently mm -hmm. he laughed he's like because you speak white people better than white people speak mm -hmm. white people and I've been thinking about what does it mean to have all of that language because I don't think of the the gift of language and my proficiency with language as being a thing that I get from white people. I think of it as very much coming from my family. Yeah, but also when you think when you say you speak something about that idea of like you speak white people better than white people speak white people, I don't necessarily if I associate it just with like verbal language. I think is, you know, like I imagine it's like understanding what they're trying to communicate understanding what they want out of a communication, understanding how they, I mean, for so many black people, we have had to learn white people to survive, to function and to survive. And I think specifically in school spaces that are all about socialization and conformity and like, and it doesn't matter how wide, how progressive it's, we're coming here all to buy into some kind of way of being. If you've done that for, you know, your life, like your childhood and you've been, and you, you, you understand them, you, you, and you know, you're different than them. You know, you're apart from, it's like you understand it, but not from being it. You understand it from like voyeurism, like actually like I see it. I can see it separate from myself. And I know also how to negotiate that, how to make you comfortable. And I'm not even trying. I'm not even trying. There's empathy. Like I would do it with anybody. I would do it with children. I mean, I would imagine a lot of people who are really good with kids are also really good with white people. And I mean, not. I mean, you know, and I. I just mean in a sense of like something when you're really, you know, understanding of children. You don't have really high expectations of like them giving you. You very much, like you said, nurturing. You very much understand that the relationship is lopsided in a certain ways and that if you want to get to a space, you got to move them. Like you're going to have to, like there's some, there's some work involved in that and you understand how to do that work and it may even come easy to you. You might just be good at it. And so I think for a lot of, you know, school children that I have found, you know, you talked about, um, how the black kids find you, <laughs> you know, how they like all of a sudden now you have a particular skill set that is needed in this space for these these black children, for these um, children of color who have never do not see themselves in these spaces. Um, you serve as a guide. And so can you tell us like how has that role been for you? It has been uh, a role that I am profoundly ambivalent about. Mm. I feel really good about talking to and supporting the kids. I felt really good about it for uh, a number of years. I was a part-time faculty member at the school where I teach, and I was really fine with checking in with kids informally and, you know, whether... I was on the Kid Whisper Network or they just came up to me because I was 
for a time, one of literally two black women teaching in the school mm-hmm. with a faculty and staff of over 300, which is, you know, unfathomable in some ways, because if there's one thing that black women do is be educators. Yes. Um, yes. So that there were so very few of us was bizarre. And they started an initiative at some point where they first went into, you know, doing their version of what is often given the acronym DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I hate that acronym. It anagrams to die. I think that means something. (laughs) But in that first iteration of the work in the school, they happened to mention that there was this gathering, POCC, People of Color Conference, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Schools, and to, for the first time in what had been more than 10 years at that point, open up the opportunity for faculty to attend. So I I, I attended my first POCC in um, D.C., and I see a couple of things. I see a cousin. I see one of my little sisters, and I see parts of myself that I have squished way into some some corners and I realized that I am basically having an experience um, akin to PTSD with my independent school experience. And I realize that part of my ambivalence and my skepticism and my exhaustion at work is rooted in the fact that I do not feel respected or adequately compensated. Mm-hmm. First of all, I want to say, I don't understand why independent schools, I don't, I, 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 hopefully they're not listening to this because I do want them to continue to send black folks to the people of color conference if that ever happens again. But I got to say, I know a lot of people, black folks, you go to POCC, which is like this conference of, for independent school teachers who are people of color, who identify as people of color. White people can go too, but it's really supposed to be an affinity group space. You get ra- like, if you were not radicalized before you got there, you're going to get there and get all in your feelings. The year I went to POCC, I left the school I worked at. Like that's the, and, and I remember I was sitting in a workshop and I, you know, I was like sitting there, have comment, and this woman, this woman stood up and she said, Sometimes you got to recognize the school that you work at just needs to go. There's no fixing it. It's not going to get better. It's no, there's no change that's going to happen. It's deeply entrenched in what it is. And it really needs to go. And I was like, it hit me. And I was just like, yeah. You know, like it just resonated with me. And it was like one of those things. And I'll, I'll go to, I had gone to another conference another year. And there were people who had been going for, decade like a decade and they were like how are we still having these same conversations you know ptsd is such a great way of explaining it because when you when you're in the war you're in the trenches you kind of put it out of your mind you just do the thing and then you come to pocc to these affinity group spaces and it kind of like you got to look at it you got to look at it and you're like looking at it and you're like damn it's not cute it's not it's not pretty it hurts what am i do and i think on some level it, that's hard because education for so many of us has felt like a path to freedom, a path to like um, knowing ourselves, knowing the world, having access. I um, mean, all that feels like freedom. But part of the reason you need that education is because of the white supremacist, like because of the society we've created, that there are only certain ways in which you can access many, many things, and it's going to be through this path of education. But when you're in those spaces and you're experiencing what you describe, I think, very adequately as trauma, I mean, sometimes from children, I mean, oftentimes from white children, you are the teacher and you are experiencing overt attacks, racism, microaggressions at levels that, you know, you can't, you're like, I'm not supposed to react to this, right? Your children, like, give them space. But it hits you in your gut like it should, you know? Like, it's, it, like it's meant to, like, it goes to the places in you where you receive that level of, like, 
the things that I've white children have said to me, I remember one of my like early, I think it's like my first year teaching. I was in a classroom subbing and I was drawing with a, this, a little white girl and I was sitting next to her and, um, she, I was, she was drawing a picture. I was drawing a picture next to her and I was drawing my person in with, you know, brown skin because I'm brown and I, you know, and she looks at me and she's like, why are you, who is that? Is that you? That's what she said. She said, is that you? Are you drawing a picture of yourself? And I said, no, it's not me. I'm just drawing a picture. And she said, um, well then who, who, who is it? Like, who is it? Why are you drawing them brown? And I said, I I like they're brown like they're just a person some you know people are brown I've drawn a brown person he said but most most people are white so why would you be drawing a brown person most people are white and I was like most people are not white <laughs> I was like most people are are actually not white um and she looked at me like like she caught herself in like, oh, I went too far. Or like, I don't know what exactly went through her head at that moment. She, or maybe she just had never considered that. Like that, that wasn't even possible. She had never thought, had that thought. But then you go home, you know, so you have your day at school and you pack up your bags and you, that same little white girl that just said that real racist thing to you, you like giving her hugs and making sure you clean her cut in a plate. You know, like you're, you're, you're mothering them. And then you go home and you have to put that somewhere. And many times you compartmentalize it because you got to go back in and be with those spaces. <laughs> yes, pretty much like everywhere. Um, I was thinking about like you've gone to mostly predominantly white institutions, like Indeed. in schools, your art stuff, like. It's like white people everywhere. Now that I think about it, it's really weird that there are so many predominantly white spaces when, like, there's the same amount of people. Well, if you're in the U.S., that's about power and privilege and access and who gets to create spaces and who gets to own spaces and all of that. Um, but I was thinking about, like, for me, um, I've worked in a lot of, I've gone to a lot of predominantly white institutions, like schools and things like that. Um but as a child, my schools were predominantly, well, they were predominantly white institutions, even if they had predominantly white black students, because the people who run them also were white. Hmm. Um, but when I became a teacher, mm-hmm. I ended up working in a lot of predominantly white schools. And um, I remember, I just remember thinking that part of my role in this space was to be kind of an oasis for black students and children and families, like a place they could go to and like have real talk or mm-hmm. get perspective. Um, and I was thinking about if when you were in any of these predominantly white schools and spaces, if you had anybody or people that were like oasis for you. I had an amazing like sort of guardian angel. She was awesome. Her name was Margaret. Um, I think in kindergarten or like first grade, Mm -hmm. she was awesome. She wore like a thing on her head. Mm -hmm. She was so cool. And it always, it felt like special. And don't even get me started on white parents. That is a whole other level of oppression that I don't think anybody deserves. (laughs) You know, nobody deserves it, but like. I don't feel like I could, I could fully understand what it is to, you know, for white people, white parents, white elite parents, people with money who feel like they pay tuition so they deserve some things to then come in and like have a question about something. And so all of those things are happening to us, happen to, you know, to, I'm sure are happening to you in your spaces. Where do you put that? Like, how are you processing those macroaggressions? Um, that are taking part in these spaces? One of the things that I think is true about me um, is that because I have been on the receiving end of this stuff since I was a very small child, Mm -hmm. that some significant portion of it doesn't penetrate at this point. Mm. And, you know... I breathe, 
and I release it mm-hmm. as white people, white peopling. Mm-hmm. But sometimes stuff does get through. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and even the stuff that I think rolls away is probably not as away as I can uh, perform it being or perform as it is, as if it is. Um, I write. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, my person um, who I decompress with and um, I download with and I process things with. A lot of it definitely comes out in my art. And some parts of it are so compacted and silenced inside of me that they're only beginning to get aired. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's making me so I, it's making me think a lot about what I think is the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> Probably because I'm a, I'm a I am a, um, an educator and I have seen and worked with so many um, black children um, children of color in these predominantly white spaces. And, um, what ends what often happens when I'm like supporting children in these spaces, it's affirming their experiences, right? Like, yes, this happened to you. I'm affirming your experience. Yeah. I'm affirming your experiences. And what is happening now is that there's this new movement, um, black at where all with students from all types of predominantly white institutions. I think it was primarily began started by black independent school students but it has grown to college students just black at like type in your school you went to your pwi i imagine it has a black at instagram page and what is happening on these pages is basically just just people telling their story it's it's, it's actually quite simple it's just like i have a story i send it to someone who's facilitating the page they put it into a you know Art like just put it yeah Instagram memes. posts meme posts they just type it up make it look uniform which I think is so it's like as an artist I know you must appreciate the like the what that what that physically looks like for all of the words to be in the same font and color for each school so no like it's like it's one story even though it's multiple stories and there's this level of coming you know coming to jesus moments you know this this kind of like accountability that i don't think i have ever seen happen in independent schools even with something like the people of color conference which has been going on for decades and decades there's a way in which we're continuing to say have the same conversations because the people in power and the people you know who could really bring about change there is really no motivation to do that because it will affect your bottom line right like you know let's be clear the people who pay for these schools to function are not black folks like that's just not how this capitalist like society is set up like that's not what's happening and so there's this balance that many independent schools are trying to hold around well we want to say the thing diversity inclusion you know we still all this but we're still going to uphold this status quo and this black at movement has been i mean it's heartbreaking for me cuz i read these sto- the stories and i'm I, I i identify with them i see them i know they're true i i i mean i believe them and they don't stop they're mo- the multiple the multitude of stories just don't stop and so i wonder how has this movement or this aspect of the movement iterations right this aspect of the movement how has it impacted you Oh, a couple of different ways. Um, I submitted to, uh, as I mentioned, I attended two different independent schools growing up. Mm -hmm. And one of them has a page that is notably one of the few that is not black at. um, Mm. And that... Those are interesting to those are and those get those have me in my feelings too. But go ahead, good continue. Um, but I did submit some things and um, I commented on something, and somebody who was not a student when I was a student knew exactly the teacher and called the teacher's name out. And that person was at least fifteen years younger than I, so it was really interesting. To, to have that 
come back to me from my, you know, youth and to recognize, oh, because nobody was listening or paying attention. And I made big fusses about lots of things in my school. I was extremely stressed and depressed when I graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my labor had made a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, my, My school had what was for, you know, the time that developed in the couple of years after I graduated, a really radical curriculum around non-Western literature and history rooted in fights that I had had with them about research projects in history and literature and in a senior project that I had done, which was teaching a Black woman's literature course because they said it was an impossible thing to do. So I did it as a high school senior and um, my doing that shifted things mm-hmm. in in the, their imaginations around possibility. And that had real, like, demonstrable effects on how the curriculum in the school looked. Wild Wild Tech is a brand new podcast all about the intersection of technology and pop culture. Each week on Wild Wild Tech, we will bring you the wildest, most bizarre, most interesting stories about technology and how it's shaping our culture. We found experts, journalists, and people who lived through these incredible events who will help us understand how technology is affecting our daily lives. Subscribe to Wild Wild Tech to hear about how the video game World of Warcraft is helping us understand the spread of COVID-19. Or how artificial intelligence is trying to break copyright law. Find Wild Wild Tech for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I knew I had done that, you know, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old. But the thing that I had internalized and let roll off my back, but it was still with me as a 51-year-old, I could write about it. And somebody who was in their 30s could be, yeah, I know that teacher. And I didn't name the name, but they knew because that person persisted in, in that same harmful behavior. So that's one side. As a teacher of the founders of one of the multiple black ads for um, the institution where I now teach. For those students, um, I have read and witnessed with some, you know, most of the stuff I would say was stuff that I had heard about or knew mm-hmm, about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on some level. And maybe I have perspectives from different people's um, experiences being shared. Uh, and I have expressed my deep love and pride in um, the young people who are at the forefront. Mm-hmm. I got a thank you note. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of two teachers named specifically mm-hmm. as um, space holders and way makers for children. And that was really moving mm-hmm. because I don't always feel like there's enough that I can I can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have really been sitting with a thing that is that I don't know how to talk about. So maybe this is it, Novika. Um, which is my school is endeavoring to change. And individuals have absolutely changed, and it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the way that 
that change is being conceived of has left far too many people outside of any um, penumbra of protection. I don't know. That sounds so like weird and poetic. But out of any... I gotta tell you, this interview is gonna be like you... The Your words are so carefully crafted and I love it. I can like sit, like I said, sit and listen to you um, speak forever and I'm sure like your words are so carefully crafted. I appreciate it. Um, but I understand what you're saying. I understand what it is to... And I mean, I think it goes back to where we started this conversation. I always tell people a gift that I have. I don't, I, I don't know how, but I'm really good at talking to white people about race. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how that happened or why, but I, I just know it's one of those things that I do well. Um, I think what I've gotten to now, why I feel like I'm good at it, but it's not always why I was good at it. Why I'm good at it now is because I don't have any expectations. Like it's not, it's not goal oriented. I'm not talking to you about this in hopes that you're going to shift change. I'm just going to be in space and, and tell my truth and, and, and like we're going to have a conversation if we choose to have a conversation. If we're going to, if we're talking, we're probably going to talk about race. Um, and I feel like I've seen so many in my years of doing this work, white folks, black folks, people of color who are deeply ingrained in white supremacy move, move dramatically sometimes. And then that, like, I think about the children and that it's not enough. And like, where do I go with the, you know, uh, you know, I, there's, there's changes happening. Things are moving. And the stories that these children are telling in 2020 sound really similar to the stories that were being told in 2010, in 2000, in 98. You know, like they, the stories ain't shifting much. The demographics aren't shifting at all in some places they've gotten worse i mean i think some places they get better they get worse but <laughs> when i still the fact that there's still tokenism like i remember when my daughter was at um um a private school in brooklyn and she was one and this was in 2000 i want to say 12 2011 she was one of two black girls in her entire grade. That's in two, th- I'm like in Brooklyn in 2012. How is that possible? And I had known many parents of color who had applied for their children to go to the school. And I just, and it's not like an, you know, it doesn't have really high academic, um, like I'm not into like rigor, you know, it's not that kind of institution. And they still had two black girls in that school. And then when I reapplied for my se- my second daughter to go to school, they were given a shade like maybe she's going to get in, maybe she's not. I'm like, what are you talking about right now? And I, and what was crazy to me is because I worked in independent schools, I understood how all of that functioned. And I was like, this is this is this is this is bullshit. You know, like this is about other things and. I get it. Like you make noise or whatever the case may be. They don't want you. So there's a way in which I appreciate the growth and change. And it feels like it's not enough. And in this time of pandemic and revolution, there's a way in which all of the structures have to shift much more dramatically. Like we're all going to be, we're all being asked and should like recognize we're going to have to do more than we've ever done before. Um, And I, you know, where I got to and where I continue to get to is that there is no, it's, it is what it is. Like the underlying issue is the, is it's at the root of these institutions. It's why they were, that's why they were started. It's what their purpose is, is about exclusion. And that exclusion is often going to be always going to be black people and other, and other, anybody who doesn't fit into whatever it is, the thing that they're doing. And I don't know how to rectify that. And there's real harm that's being caused. You know, there's real harm that, I mean, some of these stories, I think adults wouldn't be able, I mean, they're like workplace stories. You know, you go in and you're the, the teacher, the person who you love, the person who's supposed to guide you, the person that's supposed to see you says the most awful thing to you and you just got to go about your day. The kids that you thought were your friends, you recognize they're whispering and you're not invited to their house. They don't get you you didn't get invited to that party. And you know because they're so well 
educated because they're doing all this diversity inclusion work, they know is about race. And there's something, I think, a, a particular time of pain that happens when you understand how oppression functions and you are being oppressed in that space where you gain that understanding. Um, so I think all of that makes this, your particular like situation and understanding and experiences so important to be sharing those stories, um, and, and letting other people know about like, just so we like more perspective on what this looks like. Cause I think for many parents, when your child gets into an independent school as a black parent, and whether you figure out how to afford it or they give you money or you just get in on some way, it's like, oh my gosh, this is a golden ticket. This can completely shift the trajectory of my child's life. And you recognize that. And there's a way that sometimes we don't allow in or we can't also make space for the pain of it. You know, like what the harm is yeah. or, or measure both of those things. It was interesting. One of the the things... Um, I was a young parent, you know, I was not quite yet 23 when my son was born and I was way too close to independent school experience to be, to willingly send him to an independent school or a white independent school. I hear that from a lot of, a lot of, a lot of parents of independent schools, a lot of people who've gone to independent schools, I've heard, they'll say like, I won't, I'm not sending my kids there. And I, I didn't. I did, I was super intentional about his schooling um, in a way that when I would show up as his young mom, people would be surprised. Um, but he went to one of the most desirable New York City public schools for first grade because that was the school that all of my siblings <laughs> went to and my parents live in district for that school and, you know, my family was the exceptional black family and he was, um, as is the tradition in our family, an early reader. And I remember coming to open school night and the reading remediation teacher told me about all the times that she had seen AK um, to test him. And she was really sad that he wasn't going to be her student because he's such a little charmer. And I was like, you're sad that my son can read well? I said that to her. And she, she freaked out because they had put every single black or brown child in the first grade, except for my son, into remediation already. And that was how that really progressive, really desirable white student school met black children. And um, his teacher didn't understand why I was frustrated that he was not learning anything because she was furiously trying to get other kids reading and left my son and another, you know, handful of highly skilled, already reading kids to play fantasy games all day because they could already pass the test. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. After that, I sent him to um, a cooperative homeschool, basically. Mm -hmm. And then he went into a talented and gifted program um, in Brooklyn and to Brooklyn Tech for high school. And I was really aware after the one year in that elite white space, my brilliant, beautiful son, surrounded by really smart and interesting and creative and well-traveled and pick-a-thing Black people, came out of one year being told he was exceptional, like with an active disdain for Black children that we spent a lot of time mm -hmm. undoing. I mean, listen, that is the real, that is the real, I mean, I wanted to say something because I, I, we, I, we could talk forever, but we do have to stop. Yes. Um, I want to say um, there is harm that these experiences of having access to these spaces cause that we should all be looking at and there's this um saying that i keep hearing is like people say about being in the u.s or not being in the u.s or traveling or and i think it's really with making any choices it's like you have to figure out what you can't live with which you can live with and which you can't live without and it's going to be different for all of us but we need to be asking that questions 
of the spaces that we subject our children to because you may be able to live without, you know, like you don't know, but like one of those things that you may have to live without in sending your child to these school spaces or being in these school spaces is you may have to live without the love of black children, whether it's that they love themselves, whether that they have community around black children, whether like that just might be a fact. And I, and it may be something that you can look that you're okay. Like, because they got cousins or you'll get back to it or they got siblings. You may be like, I'm cool with that, but we can't pretend that they're not trade-offs. You know, like they're, 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 I think part of how we, and what this black at movement helps us do is like, see it. You can't ignore it and you can't pretend they're one-offs. What I really feel like is powerful and powerful in you sharing your story is a recognition. Like it's, it's a story in many stories. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is the, it is the norm. It is the pattern. You are not exception. Like you are actually, you are, you are it. You're, you are, you're, you're the, the experience. Um, for so many, it might be different, but it's like you are the experience. Um, what else do you want to share with us? Yeah. I want to say at some point, in the past six or seven years, um, I understood my role for a time through the harm reduction lens. Yes. That my presence made the experience less harmful for my students. Mm-hmm. Um, my students broadly and generally, students of color broadly and generally, black students, more specifically, and more specifically than that, um, dark-skinned Black girl students have experiences, and my being there mm-hmm. makes that experience less harmful. And I was really into the, the harm reduction narrative. At some point, and one of the things that Black at is, again, forcing um, a reckoning with, and our... Uh, Friend and teacher, Adrienne Marie Brown, frankly, the last time I was with her, challenged me to do something that I don't know if I have the capacity to do because of the demands of supporting and sustaining myself um, as a single middle-aged Black woman with some long-standing health issues, Mm -hmm. which is to, because I recognize that harm, even with my presence, even with my labor, even with my effort and my struggle and my effectiveness in reducing the harm, the absolute harm might be so much that the thing that needs to happen is that I, Shalewa McCall, and we, progressive Black educators, have to leave independent schools. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that families, Black families, would leave with us. And I don't know if I am so worried about what really happens without us that I I can do that. And then the actual demand of my life are that I have to be someplace. And I don't don't know if I'm all the way there yet, but I I feel like I'm looking for the- the Something that our good, 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 good sis um, also has like, helped us open ourselves up is this idea of multiple possibilities and i Mm want to just kind of enter in something else into the equation because i also feel like not only is the harm reduction like is it really harm reduction or is it like a soothing like is it like the low the sun like is it the lotion like is it just making it doable versus like making it less harmful um but i think the other part of it is we are being used as tools for the harm to continue so our presence not only our presence becomes well look at you it can't be that bad or you'll do the heavy lifting of these emotions that we are wrecking in these young people so it makes it okay or makes it doable that we continue to do this but i want to enter into another possibility which is that black educators do what these black children are doing. And I think black parents are going to be the last people at the table. <laughs> They're going to have to be dragged there because they went and found that school for a whole host of reasons that probably have to do with 
some allegiance to white supremacy. So they are probably totally going to be the last ones there, but they will, hopefully they'll come. Being, I would like to challenge us and think about what does it look like if you are fully yourself? So if you stop giving, like taking white people's, your boss's whole, like everyone's perspective, white supremacy's gaze into consideration as you move through spaces, as you move through these schools. Like, what does it look like to call a thing a thing consistently, make people uncomfortable consistently in these school spaces? And I think we don't think, you know, like, I think some of it is that none of us, I've never met a teacher, I've never met a principal, I've never met a school administrator that said, I have the power. I have any power. I literally actually have never seen a per, a educator of any own the power that they have hmm. in the space that they work. And we all have power, different levels of power, but we all have power. And I think like, how do you exercise that power? And then like, keep copious notes. Cause if someone is going to release you from your school or fire you from your, your job or like make it difficult because you are speaking truth to power, because you are speaking to the racism and the oppression that you witness in those spaces, then that's, that's a whole other, that's something else to explore. But I really do want to challenge us because I, I think that's real. Like the part of, part of the, it's, there's always heavy lifting to be done by the most oppressed you know what i mean like you like i gotta go give up my food i gotta go give up my comfort and the answer probably most of the time is yes you know because we we're looking for collective liberation not the liberation of individuals but i would challenge i think there is another other possibility which if you're gonna burn out anyway if you're gonna leave anyway burn the shit down in the process like tell them everything that's interesting i i, I think i think that i show up as fully me i know that is my my absolute intention. I know that I have a profound privilege that everything I teach is black on purpose, by design. And the only people I teach are taking my class as an affirmative choice. Everything I teach is considered an elective. Um, And I understand and I recognize where I do have power. And I see that reflected in the way that when the first you know, Black at my school started, it didn't seem to be pointing in the direction that young people who had been my students and who I've been telling they have power, Mm -hmm. um, that the first name of my Black Studies course was a legacy of resistance. Wait a second, wait a second. Shalala, let me find out that you started this whole Black at movement on the slide, you ain't know you did. It was like Inception. <laughs> it was like Inception. You've been putting the thought. But I think it's true. I do think that is part of the legacy of what we do as Black educators in those spaces, and we need to keep pushing and doing more. And we do. And my challenge for myself is to say more to. Adults, it's been real easy for me to be in that voice in my classroom, in that voice when I'm creating performances for my students and having it face the whole school community in that way. Um, But I have not gone directly and willingly into that space because I do find it depleting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am challenging myself to say yes to some more things mm-hmm. that are, are are going to be not easy. Um, no, it's going to be, it's going to be incredibly hard because we are all who we, you're, we are all of our experiences. And so when you're challenging those colleagues, you're challenging those teachers that you had when you were a student in those spaces, you're challenging your peers that you had when you were in those spaces. And you heard that message loud and clear when you were a child, like, we need more like you. You know what I'm saying? However mm-hmm. you internalize that, that's that's just part of how, like, you internalize that. Um, but I know, because you're so big, like, your, your, your spirit is so big, and you are so powerful, and your voice and your words are so affecting that I really, I know I said it as a joke, but I really 
I really do believe it is 100% possible and maybe even probable that you started this black at movement. <laughs> I'm not, no bullshit, no bullshit. And I think that that is what I mean, like what, what, what you're capable, like what is possible. Um, thank you so much for coming on Raising Rebels and sharing your stories with us. I've been asking everyone, cause we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, what has Corona taught you? Thank you for having me as a guest. I've really gotten a lot out of this conversation. Corona has been coincident with um, cancer for me. Mm -hmm. And I am cancer-free and have successfully completed treatment. This moment, all of the things, is teaching me not to wait. Mm. Um, Not to assume that there is going to be a better moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it, if, it, if it shows up as an action, mm-hmm. as an expression, as an exchange that can, can happen right now, if I care about that, I should probably do it now because I don't know what or how it might come back again. And yeah, it's all an iterative process. But it's only an iterative process if you get in it every iteration. That's right. Preach. That is exactly right. Not not wait for it to come around to where it suits you. You got to get in every time until it, it manifests. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. That was great. Stand up fussing and fighting. This podcast was produced by Domino Sound. Why not just get together and live in one love and one unity, you know? Rebel in the morning, rebel in the evening, too. Now, don't you be like a devil when I play with sounds called a rebel, rebel, rebel. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.